Father, I would ask that you would help us uh, to really understand the incarnation, the confirmation or the, the attestation of who Jesus was, and also his resurrection and his ascension, all of those things that are vital for the foundation of the church. I pray that we had come to realize exactly what those things mean so that we might be about your will, that you might move us by the power of your spirit in whatever direction you would have us go. I pray that we would not be complacent or resistant, but as we go through your word, I would ask, Lord, that you would help us, help us to understand your will fully. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, there is a prescription for what type of organization the church is supposed to be. There are different governmental um, examples which are out there. For instance, the Catholic Church, you have the Pope. He is the final word on everything, whatever he says. If it's ex cathedra, it is the same as scripture. If you were to go to a Presbyterian church, you would have a series of elders, and the pastor is just one of those elders, and he has one vote with the elder board. In Calvary Chapel, we use the Moses model where Moses speaks to God, find out what he wants, goes to the people, elders, deacons, and communicates what he believes God is going to do and vice versa. The people in the church, especially the deacons, they take care of the normal activities in the church, whether it is delivering food or doing work around the church on the building itself or ministering to people who need to be visited. All of those things are supposed to be taken care of by the deacons. And then you have the elders who are responsible for prayer and also the ministering of the word. So that is the prescription in the church. And the foundation that it is built upon is in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. It says, it was he who gave some to be apostles and some prophets, some to be evangelists and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So Jesus, along with the apostles and the prophets, are the foundation of the church. That's where it begins. And as God determines, also, there are elders and deacons inside any church, and it's vital for ex- its existence and operation. So we want to look at this. We already covered the elders. There was a list of about 14 things that were in First Timothy chapter 3 that you look for as far as qualifications are concerned for elders. And the position of an elder is similar to that of a deacon inside the church. Now, an example of what a deacon might do inside the church is listed in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Here we have several men that are called to action because there are some widows that are being neglected. And in verse 1 of chapter 6 in the book of Acts, it says, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. And so they chose or they proposed... And it pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, uh, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So that's how a proper church is supposed to be operational. And the deacons have the hands on the everyday ministering and the elders are in charge of prayer and ministry of the word. So here are the qualifications of deacons. Now a deacon, the word means servant. They're just ones who are supposed to serve inside the church. Verse 8 says, deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must Keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. And these are all the areas that might be an issue uh, when it comes to a man's nature. If you look at the opposite of these, maybe they're doing things that aren't 
worthy of respect and they're not sincere and maybe they indulge in much wine but let's go through that list worthy of respect their behavior invites respect honest in their dealings they're not dishonest you ever feel like you've been taken advantage of there was one time i I was really taken advantage of and uh, my wedding ring had wore out and so patty and i were going to go on this nice date and we went on a date and i got a new wedding ring this is my second one i have the first one still and we went to a place and there was one on sale and I said, oh, it looks like a great deal. And there's a price that was listed right there. And I said, oh, it's, that's a good price. We'll go ahead and get that. Well, when it came to ringing it up, you know, I had pulled out the money and I'd set it down and, and it was more. And she had taken the money. I go, wait a second. It's a little more. You, that's not what the listed price was. And she goes, well, I've already rung it up. You can't get it back unless you talk to the manager. I said, what do you mean? I I just handed you the money. You need to give me the money back and, uh, you know, adjust the price. No, we can't do that until the manager gets back. I said, well, where's the manager? Uh, On a two-hour lunch break. I I just about lost it right there, but I was certainly taken advantage of. I have the ring today and I didn't get the refund, but it's okay. I'm still married. You know, it's a, a wonderful thing. And so people can be dishonest in their dealings. And I have a low view of the people in that particular jewelry store. Uh, But anyhow, I don't have a low view of those who are worthy of respect and conduct themselves honestly, Uh, sincere, not insincere or double-tongued or deceitful or hypocritical. They say one thing and they do another. Uh, These same men who would be deacons. It says, not indulging in much wine, which simply means drunkenness. When I looked up the definition of this word in the Greek, it said, plenteous, altogether common, uh, that they would have some alcoholic uh, beverage wine uh, on a regular basis. Also, honest in their business dealings or not greedy, and they know doctrine and scripture. They have a good grasp on the Old Testament because that's predominantly what they had when they were assigning these positions to deacons and elders. And they hold to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. They're not doubting the gospel. They're sure of what they hope for. Um, They are solid in their faith. They cannot be shaken. They know what they understand, and they're not deceived in it. I have talked to people from different cults, and I have explained to them that I will become a cult member if they can simply answer some questions for me. And when I bring up the questions in Scripture, they just refuse to answer them. And I said, but if you can't really answer those, maybe your faith is in vain and you're believing something that is not true. Will you also change your faith? And they say, no, I'm not going to change. This, this is who I am. This is what I believe. And, but I said, but there's error that I've pointed out to you. And they said, no, I'm not changing. And, and so there are people like that that are established in deceit. And we want to make sure that we are not some of those. And when it talks about them being tested, it doesn't really mean a written exam. I think I explained this before, where some people who are going to be elders or deacons, I gave them an exam, Old Testament, New Testament theology, uh, to see how they did. It was one that was given to me when I became an elder. And several have done well, several have not done so well. Uh, But that's really, I believe, not what it's talking about here. It's talking about a time that they have spent inside the local church and they have served and they have proven themselves over that time. I've often said, I do not appoint elders and deacons. God does it. We simply just confirm what is going on. And so they do prove themselves faithful over a period of time. And after an inquiry is made, let them serve Uh, inside the church and we have to check on who they are with people outside the church and other believers maybe even their neighbors we would ask them about it now there is a word in here that is used in verse 11 for wives and it's what we would translate as deaconesses so uh, there is debate in christendom in the church the christian church can a woman serve as a deacon or a deaconess. And let me read the verse to you. It says, In the same way their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. Now this word wives would be the same word as deacon, only feminine. Uh, It's deaconess. And some argue that 
No, it's simply referring to the wife of a deacon, and so she's be calling a deaconess. In Romans chapter 16, verse 1, there's a woman by the name of Phoebe there, and Paul mentions her. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Sencrea, and she was a servant or a deaconess is what she was called. And, you know, I read some of the commentaries of what people think about this particular section of scripture. They say, no way does this mean that a woman can serve as a deaconess inside the church. It's simply referring to the wife of a deacon that we just need to leave it at that. And, you know, just as a man would have issues in the previous seven items, a total of nine of them are listed here in verses eight through 10, a woman, her propensities are listed in verse 11, the problems that she may encounter for instance honesty Uh, a wife of a deacon is she honest could you imagine a man who is honest that fits all the categories that are listed here in first timothy chapter three but her wife his wife is not she is not honest she's underhanded in her dealings in her business dealings Um, you could name several things that would be there but she's just not honest could you imagine the man becoming a deacon and his wife is a quote-unquote deaconess she's not honest but he is i think there would be a conflict there how about uh, not a false accuser or a slanderer now why would god put this in for a woman but not in for the man the man is normally not used to being a slanderer although it can happen but women they have a tendency to be relational and they talk a lot and where there are many words that is not absent and therefore they have the ability to fall in the the cause of a slanderer now the word that is used here for a slanderer is diabolos diabolical diablo satan So a woman has the capacity to develop the characteristic of the devil of being diabolical. And when I first read that, I go, wow, that's a powerful woman that can do that. But it says here that she's not to be malicious. She's not to be diabolical. In other words, there were women who were diabolical. I know there's none today, but back then there were all these women who were diabolical and then sober. Now it's not listed in the NIV, but if you look at a couple of other versions, uh, she's not to be drinking all the time like it's listed for her husband. And I don't know why the NIV left that out. They probably believe that the oldest, most reliable manuscripts did not contain that and, and that's fine. But I would still say that that is a condition and then faithful in all that they do. You wouldn't give them a task to do and then find out that they didn't complete it and then say, oh, you're worthy to be a deaconess inside the church. So don't let a man serve that has a wife who is a gossip, a complainer, a murmurer, or is discontent, and she must be able to be trusted. That's simply what is being pointed out here. Now, why would God put this in here? You know, he doesn't have the qualifications of the wife of a elder going on but he specifically points out the wife of a deacon or a deaconess and there there can be problems with that they don't have as much responsibility as the elder but could you imagine if there's a husband and a wife the husband is saved the wife comes to church she may or may not be saved it's really not clear and in general women if they go to church they want their husbands to be spiritual why don't you pray more or why don't you pray more with me or why don't you do this for somebody or why don't you go to church more and all of those things usually a woman who attends church would like to see of her husband but then once the husband has that happen i cannot tell you how many times i've seen a husband just get grabbed by the spirit and used and the wife goes it's just a little too much you need to back away a little bit or vice versa this has happened too where the woman is spiritual and the husband says no I don't want you doing so much you know you need to back away but in particular the woman uh, it seems as if it has been the case in the past now it's not true with all women but some women will have a tendency to say you were spending a little too much time ministering to those people in the church serving them because that's what a deacon does 
as deacon serves people inside the church. And because of this, there is going to eventually be some tension. That is possible. And how does the wife, how much does she have to give up in order for her husband to minister? Or how much does she have to endure in order for her husband to be a deacon or an elder inside the church? I don't know of one single elder or one single deacon that didn't have a wife that had a lot of questions. Like, what do you mean? What's required? What do I have to do? And what is he going to have to do? And is it going to take away time uh, from the family? All of those are really good questions. All I can say is that if somebody desires that type of position, there's going to be a sacrifice that has to be made to one degree or another. And hopefully the man who is an elder or deacon spends time with his wife and ministers to her. And although he will not be perfect by any stretch of the imagination, he needs to be aware and regularly minister to his wife. And then if his wife is able to accept the position, then the church will be blessed. But if she wants nothing to do with it, then the church will be harmed if somebody like that is installed. So uh, this is just a, a problem that I've seen over the 30 years or so when men and women get together and they decide they want to serve inside the church. Now, especially a spiritual woman, she can provide biblical counsel to the man who serves as an elder and a spiritual woman or wife can assist a deacon in his service to others. Uh, that Usually women, they like to uh, have discussions, they like to have communication, they like to see how people are, they stay in regular contact. I can say just as a, a way of an anecdotal story, my wife texts much more than I do. And when I text her back, it's a heart or it's a thumbs up or, you know, something monosyllabic that I give to her, maximum four words, you know, because I'm, I'm busy. But then when I get home, I have a conversation with her. But she will text me, you know, a paragraph, not long usually because she knows that I'm busy, but she will text others uh, during the day as a regular part. And she just keeps in communication with several people whether it's with family or those inside the church. And so she is a, a great assistance to me. I, I couldn't do what I do uh, without her. And so the spiritual woman, again, she can provide counsel to the husband. Now, normally if somebody is an elder or on a board inside of a church, the husband will go home and talk to the wife. And the wife, of course, she always remains silent. She doesn't have anything to say whatsoever. Uh, but you know I'm saying that a little bit tongue-in-cheek in jest. The wife always has some type of input, and uh, most of the time I think it, it can be great, and sometimes it may not be so great, and the man has to discern and be responsible for actual decisions that are made. Now, God has put a desire into the heart of man. If God has put that desire into the heart of the man, what should the wife do who is married to either the elder or the deacon? Should she submit to her husband in that calling and join in on that? Well, the obvious answer is yes, that's what she should do. Uh, but I, I do want to put it out there. There will be difficulty for anybody who serves either as a pastor, an elder, or a deacon, and you have to be willing to endure that. And so just keep that in mind, ladies, if that ever comes up as an opportunity or you're going to give counsel to somebody, if a woman serves faithfully alongside of her husband, she will actually receive the same reward as the husband because she supports him. And that comes out of the Old Testament. Now, verse 12, a deacon must be the husband of but one wife and manage his children and household well. Those who have served will gain an excellent standing and great assurance of their faith in Christ Jesus. So one wife, and I think I talked about this with elders, one wife at a time. Uh, you can't have several different wives. And of course, polygamy was uh, obviously in practice at that time that this was written. But some people will say, as I explained to you before with the elders, uh, even today, some churches will hold to if you've been married once and got divorced, then got saved, and then got married again to a believer, you're disqualified from serving in any one of these positions. I don't hold to that particular view because everything has passed away. Behold, all things become new. But that is out there where that disqualifies. And then... 
those who serve well become established firmly in their faith. Their faith is solid and there are really no consequential doubts. Now, when we get together in the men's study on Wednesday, we talk about things. Uh, certainly, I, I get, give them doctrine. We've talked about the Trinity. We've talked about angels and demons. And I have papers and they fill in uh, some of the key words that are in there. But we have also talked about other subjects, other subjects that are not so well established or are a little debatable or, um, you know, for instance, we haven't talked about this one yet, um, the idea of Calvinism versus Arminianism, and that is a discussion for the ages that has been raging for centuries, and we are not going to be able to come to a conclusion on that. Uh, but there are other subjects we have talked about. For instance, in the Apostles' Creed, it says that Jesus has descended into hell, and he preached to the captives that were in hell. And there's a couple of different views of that. Uh, for instance, that Jesus went down to hell. Where's hell? It's in the middle of the earth. Jesus went down to the middle of the earth. He preached to the captives. Those in Sheol, there's two compartments. There's uh, Lazarus's bosom uh, where, or excuse me, Abraham's bosom where Lazarus was. And the rich man was on the other side in the place of Sheol or the grave, which was a place of torment. And Jesus preached to those in Abraham's bosom and led them to heaven. That's one particular View, But then you get into some discussion where Jesus tells the thief on the cross that today you'll be with me in paradise. Well, where is paradise? If you look up the discussion on the word paradise, it's where God dwells. Where does God dwell? Well, he dwells in heaven. Where's Abraham's bosom? Well, Abraham's bosom is paradise, which is in heaven. And so Jesus went to heaven, but then Jesus talked to Mary Magdalene and said, I have not yet ascended to my father. So where did the thief in the paradise go? And you see how this just goes on and on. And when Jesus descended into hell, some of the translations say he descended to the lower regions. Well, where's the lower regions? If you're in heaven, it's earth. It's not down in hell. We just go back and forth, but everybody's aware of what it is. And we don't have to be dogmatic, but we can talk about these things. They're fun. And some of the guys in there, they get a little passionate about it. What do you mean? Well, didn't Jonah go into the well? And wasn't he in the earth three days? And, and Yeah, he was. And, and we just go back and forth. And I think we're supposed to do that. You know, as iron sharpens iron, so does man sharpen man. And whenever you have two steel swords going together, what happens? Sparks fly. But there's sharpening that takes place, and it's good. And so those debatable subjects, it's great. Have a discussion. There's no reason why we have to say, that's it, I'm done with you, I'm lit. We don't have to do that. But on the essentials of the Christian faith, Jesus is God. He came to earth. He died for us. He was buried. He ascended. He went to be with the Father. He sits at the right hand, and he's coming back. Those are essentials. If somebody doesn't want to agree with those, well, I suggest they fellowship elsewhere. And I think all the guys that I have talked to here in the church would agree with that. But that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to have just a solid foundation. We know what we believe. There is no ambiguity. There are no great doubts, consequential doubts that we would run into. We are all believers. And, you know, even with the rapture, is it mid tribulation is it pre-tribulation is it post-tribulation it's fun to talk about but you know we'll see that pre-tribulation is right when the lord gets us and that's all we have to say about that but it, it, you understand what i'm saying we we can talk about that but it doesn't doubt who jesus is and what he did and, and so that's where the fellowship comes in and as we have those discussions there's a camaraderie that takes place we begin to know each other. We see how we discuss these topics, which for some are very emotional. I've told you the story before of uh, the man who said, a woman is to be silent in the church, therefore she cannot speak up in home fellowship. And anybody that does, oh, we're leaving that home fellowship. And we had somebody do that once. Well, that's just a misinterpretation of Scripture. You're not following what Scripture actually has to say. I think uh, women used to prophesy in the church, if I'm not mistaken, in the New Testament. So... They're allowed to speak up in the church. So this idea of having great assurance of your faith, you have to serve well in order to have that. If you don't serve well, you don't have the assurance, and you're not serving in such a way that the Bible dictates. For instance, are you to serve without expecting to get any type of favors in return? Yes. 
That's how we're supposed to serve. Or just like if you lend money, are you expected to receive it back? No, it's supposed to just take wings and fly away. If you get it back, well, great, that's wonderful. And then he explains in verse 14 here, the purpose of the letter. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. So there's a particular way that we're supposed to act inside God's household, especially when it comes to elders and deacons. And he goes on to say, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth? God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth? I want to say a few things about that. The importance of the church. Now, the word in the Greek for foundation might also be translated in this particular passage as ground. The ground that we are on. Now, I know what the ground is like underneath this church. It's a a silty loam. Uh, It's been here for a long time. It's in a valley. The foundation of the church is not on bedrock. My house where I live... I know it was a cut by a scraper and a bulldozer. My house is on a solid foundation. The house right next door was fill. They're not so solid. Although they compacted it, it's not quite as solid. And when you have that, you might end up with the case, like in Florida, the Champlain Towers South. It wasn't very firm in their foundation. I've also heard stories about the Coronado Caves, if you guys know where those are, that they're also sinking in the sand. That liquefaction that takes place whenever you have an earthquake, it's built on sand, and so it just settles a little, and it's going down a little. And I heard at one point several years ago that one of them had dropped about six inches. In that particular case, you would have to change your driveway if it goes up a little bit or doorways. Now, I don't know how true that is, but I know that this is a common problem if there is no foundation. Now, there's one particular trucking company that I work for, and one time they brought in these pipes. These pipes were over 100 feet long, over 6 foot tall, and over 2 inches in diameter. And when I showed up and I saw that, I go, what in the world is that for? And they were transferring those pipes up to San Francisco to be placed in the bay for the new, I think, at Oakland Bay Bridge. And what they did is they set those in the water and they put a, I can just call it a uh, hammer on top, and they drove those things all the way down into the bay. And they wanted to establish a firm foundation for the bridge that was going to be going across there. And whenever a building is built or a structure is built, it must be constructed on a firm foundation. And we're told that the foundation for the church is solid, a solid rock. The rock is Jesus Christ. And Jesus encourages us to build on the foundation of his word. Now in Matthew seven twenty four it says, Therefore anyone who hears, or everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the word that is used here is Petra. Now, I don't know who's been to Petra in here, the city of Petra in Jordan. I've been there. It's an amazing place, all out of rock. They spent so thousands of hours carving out the rock. And it's just beautiful to see what they accomplished there. And they told us that the rooms are perfect squares. That if you got out your millimeters and went all the way across and used the Pythagorean theorem to make sure it's a, a square in there, they're absolutely square, these rooms. And how did they do that? And the chisel marks, if you look on the walls, <clears throat> the chisel marks go at a 45-degree angle and they're perfect in their lines. And it's like, wow. How did they do this back then? I'm not sure how they did. But he gives us the information that if you build upon the words, put them in practice, he gives an example of destruction if that doesn't take place. In verse 25 of Matthew 7, it says, Then the rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had a foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice... It's like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. 
So having that solid foundation is crucial. Also in Matthew chapter 16, verses 16 through 19, you'll be familiar with this. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The Catholic Church believes that the church is built on Peter, who is the rock. Where if you look at the words in the Greek, and there's a debate about this too, there are two different words. One is Petros, one is Petra. Some Greek scholars will say they're two different words, and the Catholic Church will say, no, it's the same thing, and that's where the divide comes in. But Jesus is referred to as the rock. His words are referred to as the rock or Petra, and the equivalent is used of God in the Old Testament. Six times in Deuteronomy chapter 32, the word rock is used to refer to God. So he is the rock. And Jesus is also referred to as the chief cornerstone. So you have the foundation, the ground. Jesus is the key cornerstone which is there, which the whole building is set upon. And and that's how it remains solid. It doesn't fall down easily. Now, from those foundation stones with the apostles and the prophets and Jesus being the chief cornerstone and the ground being firm, then you set the pillars. Now, pillars in the is the church. Now, the church, <clears throat> of course, we know that pillars support the whole structure. Now, as you're sitting in this room, I want you to look. You see where that... Uh, fire uh, device is right there to turn the fire alarm on then if you look over here by the blue lights on the other side of the dove you have a column there a column here a column there a column here there are also two columns in the back with two in the middle and columns up here there's one behind this we have large trusses made out of metal that go from that pillar to that pillar And it is solid. Now, I don't know how deep and big that concrete foundation is there, but it's solid. This church has been here since 1940, and there's only small cracks that you look at. So it's very solid. So you have the pillars, and then you have the stones. We are called living stones inside the church. We are the ones that hold the truth. It's a a living organism. It is not simply the building that is the living organism. The pillars would be the apostles, or not the apostles and prophets, but they would be the pastors and the teachers and the evangelists. And then everything in between those pillars would be the rest of the church. And they are the ones that keep the truth inside the church. If you don't know the truth, or if you don't have a solid foundation, if you take yourself as a solid piece, a living stone, and you put it on some other foundation, there's going to be trials come along, and you're going to experience more than necessary difficulties in your life, because you're not holding to the truth. Now, that is not to say that there aren't people martyred every day for the sake of Jesus Christ, but we still have the promise, the hope. But those people who build on that foundation outside or they mix it, they say, well, I'm a little bit foundation, I'm a little bit sand, you know, or a little bit rock, I'm a little bit sand. Those people will have no assurance of their faith. They serve maybe outside in a humanitarian endeavor rather than using the church, the place that is the the beacon of light, the solid foundation with Jesus Christ, the apostles and the prophets, and they carry the truth. That's why it's so important that people are in fellowship, they're in study, they're making sure they understand what the truth is. You debate about the rapture, you debate about did Jesus come to earth, you debate about Calvinism versus Arminianism. You try to come to a solid understanding of the truth and then you're able to communicate it to others. If people are involved in not doing that, not getting involved, not talking, not fellowshipping inside the church, then there's no solidness that is there. And so this is our task. We want to make sure that we are doing what Jesus told us to do. Remember, I'm going to say it again. In God's household, or it is God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, the church is the building that holds the truth. It is constructed with living stones, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. I already talked about the fellowship. <clears throat> if they attend, if they learn, if they grow, they will know that what the truth is. 
if people walk away from the church, from fellowship, if they do not study, if they do not worship, they walk away from what truth is. Uh, it's no wonder we look at our country. You think our country is going in the direction of being established on truth? I would say ain't no way that that is taking place. As a country that was founded by believers in their faith in God, we have turned away from that foundation, and now for the most part our leaders have turned away from the truth. You see this every single day in the news, that people are believing things. Have you lately listened to the news and gone, what? What? What are they saying is the right thing to do? Are, are you kidding me? Like this debate with the uh, athletes, the woman who is the weightlifter that's going to uh, the Olympics that is not a woman, it's a man who claims to be a woman. And did you see the latest one, the track and field woman that was banned from competing, I think, in the Olympics that's coming up, but yet... A man who takes estrogen is not banned from the Olympics. I just don't get it. Or remember how the uh, Russian women would take testosterone and they would be banned from the Olympics? But now a man can take estrogen and a woman now can take testosterone and they can compete. It doesn't matter. But if somebody uses marijuana... What? Not that I am promoting the use of marijuana, but you, you see the double standard that is there, and you're going, what is going on here? What? Who is running this joint? Well, it's not people who are grounded in the truth. They're stepping away from the truth. It's one of those palm-in-the-forehead slapping moments when you see some of the news articles that come across. And then the purveyors of quote-unquote truth and the suppressors of what actual truth is. They don't want it out there. They don't want anybody to know what it is. And it's just leading to confusion and mayhem. And there are riots that are taking place. And there, there's this desire to create a race war which is out there. And that's totally contrary to wise or, or, or wisdom and also to just getting along. And scripture tells us as far as it depends on ourselves, we are to try to live at peace with everyone that is around us. And yet there are people who are out there who are stirring it up. And the people that they're listening to, for instance, Marxism, Karl Marx, he, he was a gutter of a man. You just read about him and how horrible he was. He sucked off of others, didn't really do work himself, was violent, was angry. Uh, his personal habits were filthy. Uh, and his philosophy, which was out there, as well as Mao. Uh, Mao, I think, probably killed more people than anybody else that we know of in recorded history. And he was a pedophile, a complete pedophile. There is no God in communist China and that is where they're going today. You see that taking place. And then you can go down the list of Lenin and Hitler and everybody else who was there. They completely forsook the truth of the word. And that's where it goes. You go from order to disorder if you abandon the truth. Even those who have previously been in the church, who have walked away from the, tr the church, they are abandoning truth. They are buying into things that are foolishness in the eyes of God. And so Romans chapter 1, this is exactly what is being fulfilled today where the church is the foundation of truth and people walk away from that. It says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that men are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image in the form of a corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. That's exactly what's happening to us today. For instance, this idea of abandoning the worship of God and we are now worshiping the creation you see what they want to do by 2040? They want to get rid of all internal combustion engines because Mother Earth is suffering. 
And I think in California, it's 2035 that they want to do that. And they want to force everybody into an electric car, but we don't have the infrastructure for that. And then when you get the electric car, they tell you, you can't use that electric car because the earth is going to be damaged by the power plants up and running. And if you can't charge your electric car, then you can't go to work. Have you ever seen one of those electric cars and a guy is carrying around on the hood a generator? Have you ever seen that? It's like, you've got to be kidding me. Who is being so foolish as to do something like that? And we were talking about this in the youth group. And one of the kids in there, we were talking about the electric cars and the grid and the worship of the earth. And we're making life difficult for everybody who is out there. And they said, well, let me do a little investigation. And they started coming up with how many power plants would be necessary to be online in order for everybody to have an electric car. And the pollution would be so much greater from the coal burning power plants and the, the fossil fuels and all of that. It's just foolishness to get there. And if you think it's going to be powered by a, a wind farm or solar panels, we are mistaken. And they actually came up with the numbers and it was up in the jewels, the, the amount of power that they needed. And I'm not talking about little rocks. That's the amount of power that's going to be needed. And that's all foolishness because they are worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And what did God say to us? He said to Adam and Eve, subdue the earth, capture it, make sure you manage it. That's what God wants us to do. But we have left that and we're going to foolishness. And so when somebody wants to build a $150 billion train, 200-year-old technology? It's like, what are we doing here? We should be going towards the Jetsons and not towards the railroads that are out there. And, And so I don't mean to be on a rant with this, but we are leaving the truth that is contained inside the church. And anybody that goes to any church should be able to find that truth there. And when it comes to the worship of the earth, we can simply point out, well, that's what people are doing on the outside. and what That's what the world is doing. That's why all the confusion is out there. And then he wraps this part of it up. He says, <clears throat> beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the spirit, was seen by angel, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world. It was taken up into glory. Now, this would have been a song or a hymn that is probably a partial psalm or hymn that they would have sung. You could take this today and you could make it into a song that you could sing. And this is how that they would remember specific doctrines or even scriptures. Uh, I think when we were going through um, Exodus, I I told you Miriam's song, uh, the horse and rider fell into the sea. And we actually sang that song and people were able to remember scripture by doing so or uh, therefore being justified by grace we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ rejoicing in hope that's a song that we used to sing but is also in the book of Romans and and we want to make sure that we are endeavoring to memorize some of this stuff to to keep it close inside and it deals specifically with this mystery of godliness incarnation Confirmation or attestation, confession, resurrection, and ascension. If we understand what these things are, it changes who you are. Like, for instance, the incarnation. Everything around the incarnation. Why did God have to become a man? What was the purpose of that? You look in the Old Testament, it was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Well, why did that happen? Then you start to understand sin. Then you understand the consequences of sin. Then you understand how much blood had to be spilled in the Old Testament where rivers of blood would have flowed from the Temple Mount. I don't know if you've ever been to a slaughterhouse, but it's, it's not a pretty sight. And, and so the incarnation, if you understood everything behind that, it was a mystery that was previously hidden and it is now revealed and it's what everybody needs to know. What about confirmation or ask? attestation the bible attests to who jesus was 
and what he has accomplished. You know, let me go back a little bit. Why the incarnation? Why was it necessary that Jesus, who is God, becomes a human being? And why did he have to die? What was the purpose of it being foreshadowed in the Old Testament? How reliable is the confirmation of the ministry of Jesus? And what is its importance? Or what was the purpose of rising from the dead and ascending to the right hand of the Father? And what does that phrase even mean? There's tons of meaning in that. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And then he's coming back for us. And if you understand what that is, that should change your whole outlook on what you do in this life. Because he's coming back. You know he's coming. And when he shows up, are you going to be ashamed? Or are you going to go, I'm ready. Let's go. I got my tennis shoes on. I'm all set to go. You know, the rapture shoes. We're, we're just going to go up. And you, it changes, like I said, your perspective. You, you divert all your efforts into knowing that that's coming. I do this when it comes to vacation. If I know I'm going on a vacation, I, I usually work most days. I'm working today. And I worked yesterday. And I worked all week. But then I save them up. And I get a stretch where I don't do anything. And I just go, this is good. The sand, the blue water, you know, all of that. That's what I do. I I plan ahead. I start thinking ahead. What do I have to do in order to make sure that this goes off without a hitch where there's no problems? Nobody gives me a phone call and I don't have to worry about anything. What has to happen? I do that for vacation. Am I not going to do that for life? For the life that lies ahead? Have to prepare for that or for a job. Do you prepare for a job? You answer an application, uh, either online or in purpose, and they say, why are you here? I don't know. There's something about a job. What do I have to do? No, you prepare for that job. What if you're in the military? What's this? Oh, it's a gun? Oh, what what am I supposed to do with that? You prepare for what lies ahead. That is why these things, this mystery of the glory which lies ahead, if we understand it, it's going to change us. Like everybody else which is out there that doesn't understand these things, what is their fate? I will tell you this. There was an individual. I saw them get it. And they instantly broke into tears because they understood the ramifications of everybody else who doesn't have the gospel. And today they're not walking with the Lord because they cannot abide by that. But they understood it. They got it. They grasped the meaning of the incarnation, the attestation, the confession, resurrection, and ascension. So we have to ask the question where we start applying this. How solid is our foundation? How committed are we to the truth? Now, there have been times where I'll see somebody post something on a blog and I write I type it in there and these things are never ending you know when you do something like that then somebody else comments then somebody else sees your comment and they comment and comment and it can go on for a hundred and fifty different posts and by the time you get to the end it's talking about some circus in India rather than about the truth that you originally had intended to be addressed <clears throat> but I'll do that just to get in the word Edgewise. I, I can give an example. I, I just made this one uh, post, and it had to do with a person who is blind, that the, all they see is black. And I just made a comment. I said, how do they know what the color black is? And it got like 150 comments on that alone. I've gone... All I asked was, how do they know what black is? And and you can do that, but we need to make sure we're not just making posts like that, that we are making posts about Christ. I had one time where somebody said, I'm ignorant of religion. I'd like to talk to somebody about it. And I said, bingo. And I just started typing away, you know, and, and it was kind of exciting to do that. And it lasted for a little while, but they really just wanted to chit chat they really didn't want to know what the truth actually was but it's our job to be committed to understanding the truth remember we are the church of the living god the pillar and foundation of the truth so the enemy if you decide to do this if you really decide to commit yourself where you say i'm following christ 
I'm falling, I'm taking out all stops. Now, I, I think most of you are doing that anyhow, and that's good. But there can be things that come along that interrupt that, where you're following Christ and all of a sudden you're taking a hiatus for a day or two, or maybe a week, or maybe a month, or maybe a year. There are people who do that. The enemy would seek to disrupt your effort of abiding in Christ, <clears throat> knowing the truth, being part of the church, by creating problems in your families. Anybody have any problems in their families? What about difficulties at work? <laughs> I'm going to give you an example. <clears throat> I have a good friend in another state. He's manager of a large company. And somebody was in the warehouse and they were playing some rap music. And the rap music was playing the n-word over and over and over and he happened to be there when the music was playing so he asked the guy he said why is that in the rap music if this is such a bad word but he used the word in explaining that that was later used to get him fired just because he explained that lost his job fantastic job he was ahead over everything and they talk to some attorneys and that's it. Well, he's a follower of Christ. Having difficulties at work? Have you lost your job over something inane like that? What about uh, hitches in relationships? They're not going as smoothly as they should. There's misunderstandings there. What about complications with your health? Nothing to get you off task quicker than your health to take a turn for the worst. Then you start worrying about your health. And you start focusing less on Christ. But if your foundation is solid, you turn to God and go, okay, what's up? What's next? Uh, am I going to get better? Am I not? Is this going to be the status quo? And also the enemy will use struggles with temptations. There will be temptations out there. And how do we do against those temptations? That's how the enemy works. To get us off of the foundation, to set us aside, to maybe get us on a new Foundation, And if that is the case, this is the possibility of what can happen. First Timothy chapter 4, or excuse me, yes, chapter 4, verse 1. says, the Spirit clearly says that in the latter time, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons, which we'll get into next week. What are doctrines of demons? Are they being taught today? <clears throat> Do you recognize any in the church? Or maybe even outside the church. We're going to go through that. But in the meantime, I, I want to encourage you guys. Give it your all. You know, it's with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's in Luke chapter 10, verse 27. We are to follow God with everything that is within us. Have you ever seen those strongman competitions? Where they have to go pick up like a 400-pound rock and they grab that thing and they move it over somewhere or they're just deadlifting something, hundreds of pounds getting it up. They're using all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And God asks us to do that when we follow him. My prayer for you is that you will have the desire and you will follow through. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, how it gives us insight and direction. We thank you for the foundation which you have set and Father, we know it is Jesus who is the chief cornerstone, the apostles and the prophets, but we are also living stones inside the church. May you use us, Lord, to carry the truth when the truth is undesirable. May we still speak it in a tone of love and help us to do this, Lord. Provide for us the opportunities as we study and know more about you. In Jesus' name, and the church said, please stand. <clears throat>